we might as well start. Um, well, I have still two things to finish off from last night. Uh, since I was so verbose last night, I'll try and be a little bit uh, shorter this evening. Um, we were talking about the seven treasures. Well, we managed to get through five of them, so your two treasures missing. <laughs> I can't leave you without your other two treasures. <laughs> so the two treasures which we've got to examine or look at, um, well, I think we can dispense with these fairly quickly. One's called renunciation and, and uh, generosity, and the other one is basically wisdom. So I think we can get those through those fairly quickly. <laughs> uh, so... The word, surprisingly enough, is not the word you'll be familiar with that's used for generosity. Uh, the word that's used in Pali in this particular listing is a word which is chaga, as opposed to dana, which actually this is the word literally means to, I mean literally to give up, to let go of something. Um, the word dana is actually the verb form formed out of it, which actually is to mean to be generous, you know, to give actually. So we're talking about generosity, stroke renunciation. That's very easy, very interesting, isn't it? Because when we think of generosity, then we don't think about automatically about renunciation. And in fact, I remember teaching a course not so long ago, and people actually objected to the word renunciation. You know, they said, can't you use a different word, the renunciation? <laughs> This was in America, by the way. <laughs> they didn't like the idea of renunciation whatsoever <laughs> in the States. So, you know, can we have an alternative word? Yeah. No, it's, we're going to have to stick with this one. So uh, let's, let's just think about what we mean when we're talking about generosity. Well, first of all, to be generous. Why is this? This is a Buddhist virtue. In fact, it is the, one of the principal Buddhist virtues throughout um, Asia is the virtue of generosity. For example, if this was in an Asian country and I was uh, you know, a bhikkhu sitting in front of you, I'd probably be talking to you as a group of lay people about generosity um, as being the chief virtue that to cultivate in your lives. Um, Buddhist societies, of course, are founded on this virtue of generosity because, obviously, of the relationship between the monastic community and the lay community. It was, it was a contract, basically, that the Buddha drew up between monastic communities and lay communities in the sense that it was a very clever move. I don't know if any of you have ever thought about this, but basically it was a very clever move. The Buddha said to his followers, OK, you want to give up society and you want to move away and become live this more ascetic spiritual life okay i'll put you in a relationship where you can't do without society in fact you're dependent for everything that your basic needs um, such as f food and clothing and housing and medicine and everything else which depends on the community who you are going to serve in some way or another so that's the traditional idea is actually the traditional idea of course is giving to the sangha to give to the Sangha, to give to the monastic community, the community of monks and nuns, as it was in the time of the Buddha, primarily monks these days through all sorts of historical quirks. Um, but that's how it is in traditional Buddhist communities. And so there's an awful lot of giving going on. The most obvious way that you'll see this if you go to a South Asian country, of course, is the alms round. Uh, people walking in what's called the Pindapat, walking in the alms round, standing in front of a house, 
waiting to see if anybody offers any food and if they don't or if, you know, if they don't you move on if they do then you basically accept whatever is given whatever is offered to you on that arms round not every Buddhist culture does this it's just kind of historical digression for a second not every Buddhist culture did this in China and Tibet for example because of the size of the monasteries um, they didn't go out on arms round. People came to the monasteries primarily and offered food and sometimes money in order to buy food. I mean, I always have this vision. There's this famous monastery in Tibet called Drepung Monastery, which they reckoned at its height had about 10,000 monks in it. Can you imagine them going out on arms round? <laughs> it would be like a swarm of you know, a monastic locusts hitting the local area. <laughs> <laughs> so it was was it simply wasn't practical for that to happen. So it was offered to by or for example, it was very much a feudal system uh, whereby um, a proportion of the crops grown were offered to the monastery. Um, basically, it was very much like the medieval monasteries in the Europe from that point of view. And the same was true in China too. And so, if you went to those, if you go to those countries still today, or to Tibetan refugee settlements, you'll still find this basic form of offering going on. So we have here, in, in terms of generosity, we have material generosity, you know, the giving of material goods, and that's considered to be the lowest on the strata, actually, um, the lowest aspect of this notion of generosity. Now, I think we have to think about generosity in our own lives. Generosity isn't just giving things. Um, And why would you give things anyway? Well, part of the reason, part of the rationale for this is if you want to diminish self, this is a good way to do it. This is a good behavioral method. Start giving things away. However, done with the wrong spirit, you can give everything away and still be incredibly attached amazingly attached to even what you're left with. I mean, it's very famous, again, it's a Tibetan story, a Tibetan story of a Tibetan aristocrat who became a monastic. He decided to join the uh, monastery and gave all of his wealth and all of his money away. And one day he got incredibly angry and upset because somebody had taken his begging bowl. (laughs) So it shows you how, for example, attachment can devolve down even onto the smallest things. Um, and this is quite common in Tibetan society. Things disappear all the time when you're in Tibetan society. I sometimes come back to my room in the monastery and find all my books had gone. <laughs> um, other monks just borrow things. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you're expected to be generous with your things that you have. Uh, and interestingly enough, in Tibetan language, when you buy something, particularly religious objects such as you know, um, spiritual books and statues and things like this, you don't actually buy them, you pay a ransom fee for them. <laughs> That's what it literally means in Tibetan, you pay a ransom fee. So they're not really yours, so you shouldn't get upset if they go. <laughs> so you don't really own them. Okay, so this is all about the spirit of generosity. So the spirit of generosity, as you can well see, is again another mental factor that we need to develop because it's one that's particularly involved in the diminishment of self-grasping, the way that we grasp after ourselves and aggrandize ourselves through, often through our possessions. Um, there's a strange kind of quirky mix that's gone on in the West which is often particularly we think we are somebody or identity is very much tied up with 
what we think we have. So we are what we have a lot of the time. You know, often, with, you know, I mentioned this to the other night, we are what we do. We think we are what we do. So we identify with our professions. But we particularly identify a lot with our possessions. So the Buddha actually is recommending giving away a certain amount of material possessions and to do it on a regular basis as a way of starting to diminish the self-grasping, the sense of self-identity we're getting through possessions. However, this is not just about materiality. It's also about, for example, the gift of time, the gift of listening, the generosity that goes with that as well, of being able to spend time and give time to others, to give your help, to give your service to others as well. So this is very much about a community sense of spirit, community spirit here, of helping others, even if you don't have much to give. And actually, particularly in Asian cultures, this is often very true. People have very, very little to give. So they will engage, for example, in the monasteries in building work and constructing work and giving their time in that way. So there are many, many different ways that we can give and it's about, as the word literally means, Chaga, giving up something. Giving up. And um, I hate to tell you this at this juncture in the, in, the, in the retreat, but the Buddhist path is a path of renunciation. <laughs> it's a path of not accumulation, although you have that in a technical term, but it's not a path of accumulating more and more stuff, including Dharma books as well, Um, there's a kind of principle I think that people in the West work with Dharma books it's called the osmotic principle is I have have enough Dharma books surrounding me by osmosis somehow the wisdom of them is going to seep into me (laughs) without ever opening opening them Um, so be generous with yourself and open your books and read them (laughs) here Um, so what we are attempting to do with this whole notion of generosity and why it's considered to be a jewel is because it's actually directly involved in diminishment of the self and self-grasping. It's like giving away something of what you believe to be yourself. Every time you give, you're actually diminishing the self. Give frequently enough, then you really, really do start to work behaviourally on actually starting to break down this edifice of who and what we think we are. As you heard from the talk a couple of nights ago, when I was saying the self is not a thing, it's a process. It's a process that can go in in many different directions. It can go into wholesome directions or unwholesome directions. In in unwholesome directions, it ends up being solidified or attempt to solidify into a sense of real strong identity. In this particular instance, in the recommendation to start giving and be generous in your life, as I say, not just with material possessions, and please don't hear it in that way because that is not really ultimately what it's about. It's actually about uh, an orientation of the mind which is actually going to relinquish things rather than accumulate them. So giving time, not hoarding your time simply for yourself. It's my time. You know, being able to um, actually relinquish some time. Now, the path of renunciation that I mentioned at the beginning, you know, just a second ago, the path of renunciation, which is the Buddhist path, is, a, is literally about giving up things. Traditionally, of course, this was going, as they put it, from home to homelessness. This was the traditional um, uh, phrase that was used for entering the monastic order, to go from home to homelessness. 
You know, literally, your monastery was not your home. We're not going to do that. Um, some of us have done it, um, but most people in the West now are not going to take up that lifestyle. So we have to think of a way of living with renunciation and living with generosity in the modern world, which in some senses still resonates with the spirit of, of that idea. And there's one particular phrase that the Buddha uses to his monks and nuns in, in a part of the Pali Canon called Divinia, um, which I think is actually a very useful one in the 21st century. He advises his monks and nuns to be content with little. Not too little, and not too much, but to be content with little. Now that is actually the very opposite, as, you, as we well can see the moment we step out into consumerist society. It's the very opposite of the way society is going. This is why actually somebody on this path is often spoken of as swimming against the tide. Actually swimming against the tide, because the tide of society is going one direction, and the spiritual path, particularly that being driven by generosity is going in another direction. Now, there are other aspects to this notion of generosity, traditionally. Um, one of the other aspects is the gift of fearlessness. You know, in, other, in, in sort of enabling people to be courageous to face their problems. You will often see on Buddha statues, there's a very beautiful one actually in the City Museum in Birmingham, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, um, but it was the very first acquisition of the City Museum in Birmingham, which is this beautiful standing uh, statue of the Buddha. And it has his right hand raised, which is the gesture of fearlessness. Yeah. This is what the Buddha offers, is fearlessness in the face of difficulties. You remember I said last night, you know, everything is impermanent, now get on with it. You know, the get on with it, however, is with courage and not fear not to be you know, sort of be riddled with fears and therefore stopped from doing anything, stopped from actually living our lives because our lives can become so fearful that we can circumscribe them into a circle of the known rather than actually have a much, much opener sense and stepping out into the unknown. Now, to, in order to do that, there has to be a degree of courage. Now, what the Dharma teachings are meant to give, what these teachings are meant to give, and what we can actually offer to each other is to stop encouraging fear, but to encourage a more fearless attitude in life. This is what we can do. This is how we can help each other in ordinary life. And that comes through another aspect of this, which is the gift of friendship as well. That requires generosity, to be involved with others in terms of friendship. And I'm not talking here about sexual relations or anything like that. I'm talking about just simply people coming together through mutual kindness and friendship here, which is a very, very strong bond. And as we know, in that kind of harmonization of friendship, there can be courage. There can be courage to do all sorts of things that individually sometimes we don't think is possible. So this is another dimension to the notion of, of generosity. The final traditional notion of generosity is the highest gift of all, which is the gift of the Dhamma, or the gift of the Dharma, the gift of the teaching itself, being able to share it with others. 
being able, and it doesn't mean nothing to having to spout a whole load of Buddhism, but being able to share what you have learned actually on this path in your practice with others, perhaps to help them um, with their lives as well. And this is considered to be the greatest gift that we can give to anybody, is this gift of the Dharma. Now let me come back to the renunciation side, because this path being a path of renunciation, let's give a gift to ourselves, actually. Sometimes giving up is a good thing, giving up on certain things, particularly if they're taking us away into unwholesome activities. To get a regular meditation practice going, which is a gift to yourself as well, a generous gift to yourself, uh, and also a gift to others if it changes your behavior with others, as hopefully it does, then you might need to give up something like time to do that. You know, whatever time you select from 20 minutes to half an hour to 45 minutes to two 45-minute sessions a day, whatever you can give up in order to create that. Now, that might mean giving up sleep sometimes, you know, that extra half an hour in bed or whatever it is, or it might give, mean giving up entertainment in order to engage in it. You know. uh, I can envisage kind of a, a scenario coming in from work, I'm too tired to do meditation, so I'll watch the television. And so what we watch on television is greed, aversion and delusion. <laughs> And that could be through newscasting or the soaps. <laughs> you know? Now, I'm not suggesting there's anything morally bad about television, um, but it just seems rather strange to me that one would want to engage in watching it sort of externally when you can actually watch it in here and actually learn from it um, by introspecting and actually becoming coming to grips with our own greed, aversion and delusion. So... Giving up is actually a part of it because also we can understand if we value something, we make time for it. If there's something valuable in your life, you will make time for it. You will give up other things in order to do it. And I don't think the practice here, and I'm talking obviously specifically here about meditational practice, is any different. If you really value what, for example, you're learning here and want to do it in everyday life, you might mean having a very, very careful look at your ordinary life and thinking, hmm, I enjoy this, but perhaps it's not actually worthwhile in the end. You know, only you can do this. Only you can do this in your own lives. And all I can do is say that there has to be this valuing process in order, for example, to build a meditative practice into your life, if you so wish. And it's one of the biggest problems people often have when they come on retreat is actually, how do I keep this going? How do I keep something like this going in ordinary life? Well, the first thing is actually you're going to have to give up something. You know? Now, the Western world, I think, likes its cake and eats it. You know, it wants to do both. It wants to continue to do all the stuff it was doing before, as well as doing some spiritual work as well. I call this aiming at a better sangsara. This is not really the path to liberation that the Buddha speaks about. It's about tinkering around on the edges of sangsara just to make it a little bit more habitable. You know, I'll enjoy my miseries in a slightly different way. <laughs> I joke. 
But often that can be what Western Buddhism is about. And again, you have to examine it for yourself. I mean, I can sit up here and very easily make these pronouncements, but you have to examine it in your own life. What is the aim of your practice? If you have one, if you want to practice and want to make room in your life for a practice, what is the aim of having that practice in my life? How is it going to affect your life? How do you want to live? Being a big question, really, um, that everybody has to ask themselves. So renunciation is a very, very big topic. It could actually be a whole evening's talk in itself, the notion of renunciation, because it touches every aspect of our lives. Because we live, particularly in the West, I think in a very accumulative society, uh, we get very, very attached to things. And even those things, you know, I'm sure everybody's got this somewhere. Oh, I won't let that go. It might be useful in the future. <laughs> you know, the, the most use. So we end up with a lot of stuff. Have you noticed that your whole house is filled with stuff? And then you go around collecting information, which is more stuff. So you've got your head full of stuff, your house full of stuff, and everything, everywhere, there is bits and pieces all over the place. And it becomes very sad because we can't actually let any of this go. We can't actually make any room. And this, I, I actually put my hand on my heart and said, this is an absolute conversation I overheard over my garden fence about two years back when I heard somebody asking if they could borrow something from a neighbour. And the neighbour said, I can't possibly lend you that. I don't even use it myself. <laughs> It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> I think that says it all, you know, <laughs> about attachment to things. Yeah. I can't possibly lend you, I don't use it myself. <laughs> yeah, so we get terribly, terribly attached to things and to possessions and having them. And again, part of this living a life more simply living, being a little bit more content with little might be a bit of relinquishment of that. You know, to live a much more, you know, I used the word the other night, a couple of nights ago, living a bit more of a spacious life rather than a claustrophobic life. The world of things and possessions can often lead to a radical sense of claustrophobia in this world and not a lot of space, um, as well as all of the attachment and craving that is actually um, really to be found in having lots and lots of possessions. Now, again, remember this is a mental phenomenon in the sense that you know, we might have a little and be terribly attached to it, and we might have a lot and be not attached to it at all. So it's actually, again, about the way that you incline your mind, going back to one of the earlier talks. The way that you incline your mind will form the shape of your life, how you approach it. You know, so you can meet people who have a lot of possessions and money and that, who are extremely generous. And you can find people who have quite little being incredibly, incredibly attached to the little that they possess. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for not terribly good reasons. So what we're talking about is a mental attitude. And what the Buddha is trying to get us to see is the beauty of giving, the beauty of sharing, the beauty of just participating with others, giving friendship, giving time, giving energy, sometimes giving money and possessions if you have them. You know. Also giving from our experience, for example, if it's on the path. And as I say, this doesn't mean having to talk a whole load of Buddhism. It can be just 
actually speaking from experience of something that you've learnt um, without all the jargon associated with it. So there's a lot associated with, with renunciation. So, swiftly on to wisdom. <laughs> Panya in Pali. Panya is really part of what we consider to be the essential goal of what the path is about. Now, wisdom is not particularly a good translation of the term panya. It's the one that's become standard. If you look at most popular books on Buddhism and even sometimes some academic works on Buddhism, you'll find the term panya translated as wisdom. It more, it more means something like a penetrating understanding or a penetrating insight into the way things are. So this is really the culmination of the path, the sense of living with panya, living in accordance with the way things are. The word dharma itself, well, the insight that we're having, the understanding we're having, is the understanding of the dharma. Now, the dharma isn't just the teachings. It's a twofold sense of the word dharma in Sanskrit. The word dharma actually has many, many, many different meanings, and it often varies according to the tradition. But in Buddhism... The word dharma has two dimensions to it. It's a synonym for the way things actually are. For the way things they actually are. Not the way, and I do emphasize this, not the way I would like them to be. <laughs> you know, Because we can have all sorts of fantasies about the way I would like the world to be, for me. But it simply isn't that way. And actually, when I bump up against the reality of the way things actually are, then it causes me pain. If I have a fantasy that I'm holding to about the way I want it to be. For example, I might have the fantasy that things are permanent. Well, that's a real one that you're going to bump up against, because they're not. And sometimes you can keep the sense of impermanence at bay for a certain period of time, and then it kind of catches up with you. So if you like, the way of living with understanding, living with panya, is to live in a way with impermanence. In the Soto Zen tradition, for example, Dogen, um, who's the founder of the Soto Zen tradition, actually talks about uh, that awakening is simply nothing other than living impermanence. Really living impermanence. Not just understanding it as we do, you know in this intellectual fashion, when we take it in, we comprehend it, and then actually don't live with it at all. And, and I think I suggested to you probably on the first evening, we see this actually in very little things. You know, we can sit here and sagely nod our heads and go, hmm, everything's impermanent. Yeah. Profound, isn't it? Everything's impermanent. And then get upset when your pen breaks. <laughs> or it runs out of ink. Or your car doesn't start. You know, I, I think I gave you a list of these kinds of things. You know, uh, those sort of things that uh, Henry J- uh, William James calls the malice of inanimate objects. You know, all these things when they don't actually function for us anymore. You know, this is a sign of impermanence. I'm not here talking about loss and tragedy and all of those profound things which we will encounter at some point in our lives. All of us, all of us will be touched by them in some way or another. Certainly by loss. We will all be touched by that. So it has this sense of the term dharma, of, li- of the way things actually are. 
It has another sense, and this is actually within the Buddha's teaching itself, of learning to live with the way things actually are. So the teaching is about teaching us how to live with the way things are, not the way we would like them to be. So those three marks of existence that I spoke about, of, for example, anicca, which is impermanence, which I've just mentioned, dukkha, and the last one, anatta, you know, of not-self, living self as a process rather than as a thing, living consciousness as process rather than as a thing. Actually, you can't do anything else. That's what's going on anyway. You know, we can attempt to create ourselves into things. We can try to make ourselves substantial. The French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, had a very interesting idea in his work Being and Nothingness. He said basically everybody was trying to turn themselves into tables and chairs. You know, because actually we were quite envious of the substantiality that the things around us seem to have and that we don't possess at all. You know, so you look at a chair or a table and it doesn't seem to be changing that much. You know, look at those around you and look at yourself. There's a kind of insubstantiality to us. So we're trying to firm ourselves up, shore ourselves up by becoming something in this world. Hence the reason why we over-identify with roles you know, of what we are, what we have, what we do. You know, all of these things that we try to make ourselves a much more substantial entity in the world by becoming something. By actually trying to become something in this world. Now, of course, the Buddha is saying that this is, again, a project which is doomed to failure. Because no matter who or what you might think you become, well, again, that's going to be stripped away from you at some point in time. Even if you have the most wonderful career and profession, at some point in time you're going to have to retire and give it up. And then there's what I call the big retirement, called death. You know, which is when you don't have a choice about it at all. Yeah. Uh, and everything that you possess, everything you have, everything you think you are, is somehow taken away from you. The German language poet Rilke had a wonderful phrase for this. He said, be ahead of all your partings. Yeah. Yeah, to be ahead of all your partings. You know, to live that way, in a sense. Um, he says, we live in this world. This is out of one, if you know the, I don't know if anybody knows these poems. It's in a poem called The First of the Duino Elegies. And in this particular poem, he says, we live in this world forever taking leave. As we stand in this world, we're like a bowl with hot water evaporating. Yeah, that's what's happening to us. Yet we try to make ourselves so substantial, and we're not. And actually not living in accordance with that, i.e. not living with understanding, not living with insight, not living according to the Dharma, well, we end up dukkering quite severely. Um, and although I've kind of glossed that word as meaning many, many, many things, this can be real suffering you know, if we don't actually live in accordance with the way things are or we attempt to hide behind a fantasy about how we like, would like them to be. when our fantasy is ruptured, as surely it will be at some point in time, and not that the fantasies are particularly happy most of the time that we live, 
a lot of the fantasies themselves are very, very unhappy. Um, but at some point in time, those fantasies are going to be ruptured by the real, the way things are, the way they actually are. The sands of time will shift. Change will be upon you. Death might be upon you. Certainly the loss of loved ones might be upon you. Um, yet we kind of think that things are certain and permanent. And often the obsession in the Western world has been the search for certainty. Whereas actually in the Buddhist world, the search has been for uncertainty. You know? Actual things are uncertain. We do not know. Remember that phrase I gave you, that Tibetan little phrase I said they chuckle about? Yeah. One thing is absolutely certain. There's your certainty. <laughs> if you want certainty, that's the one thing that's absolutely certain. But the uncertainty, of course, is when. So get on with it. There's the kind of real impetus behind that. Live now. Try to become human in this moment. And that means living with understanding. This understanding does not exclude, of course, compassion. It does not exclude friendliness. It includes generosity. Somebody who has wise understanding, who lives wisely in this world, lives automatically with those things. In fact, in the Metta Sutta, which I'm going to, probably on the very last evening, I'm going to give you a talk about the Brahma Viharas as a nice place to finish the retreat. These four qualities that the Buddha speaks about as being really, again, jewel-like. Friendliness, compassion, gentle joy, and equanimity. These four things. Now, in the Metta Sutta, which is the classic text where the Buddha gives this teaching on Metta, there are a number of indicative phrases in this. For one, he says, there is no better mindfulness than actually being friendly. Yeah. developing a friendly attitude towards yourself and to all things, he says. Yeah. He says, things that crawl, things that fly, things that do this, things that do that, and particularly other human beings. Uh, to have developed this real sense of friendliness in this world. It's often translated as loving kindness, which I think gets a little bit sentimental, because actually this is a much more of a fundamental sense of being friendly. Because you don't have to love everything, but you can be friendly towards all things here. So living with wisdom is like that. And he says, one who lives in this way, one who lives in this way will not, as he puts it, be born again. However you interpret that phrase, and there's many, many different ways of interpreting the notion of what being born again means, from the very traditional way to the much more psychological sense, which is there within the traditions as well. So, living with panya, living this sense, and panya, for those who are interested in languages, then the sort of double N, nya sound, almost like the sort of Spanish nya sound, um, actually always indicates knowing. So actually, panya is always a way of knowing something, understanding something, really, really starting to live it. So one who lives with wisdom, one who lives, using the old translation, but one who lives with this deep insight into the way things are, is in a sense living freely, much more freely. 
living without all of the kind of ties and fetters, and that's a deliberate word that's used in a tradition that we are fettered to certain ways of understanding things, that we can be liberated from. Literally, the fetter ties you down to a particular view. And this is the liberation of views, the coming to rest of all views in Panya. And Panya is associated with absolute understanding of the four ennobling truths. What often is referred to as the four noble truths, but it's the four ennobling truths. The truths which ennoble us from our investigation of them from actually coming to grips with them, beginning to want to understand what dukkha is all about. How does it come about? How do I generate it? How am I implicated? And, and finally, of course, that it come, can come to cessation and that there is a particular way of doing this. I mean, this is actually the implicit sense of what the Buddha is saying. There is a way of getting out of this. We do not have to be in this condition at all. There is, a, there is a reason, there is conditions and causes, if you like, for the mess that we create. Yeah? And once we begin to understand that, it's a bit like a knot. You know what happens when you've got a knot? You kind of travel backwards, don't you, to get the knot undone. Well, that's what we're doing. We're unraveling the knot. Yeah? In one particular text, uh, Buddha Gosa, he's quoting the Buddha again, he says, the Buddha says, Who's going to untangle the tangle? Yeah. Who's going to untangle the tangle? Well, he says, it's not me. It can only be done by you, this untangling of the tangle. And if you like, a very strong image that's used, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, um, usually in the figure of a kind of, usually in a sort of iconographical figure, is that it's with the sword of wisdom, with the sword of gnosis, that one cuts through the tangle. Yeah? That one starts to really cut through to the heart of reality, to the way things actually are. And that's a particularly strong image that's used out in, in, in late Indian Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism in general. But the whole point about Panya is it sees clearly. It sees things the way they are. Yeah? So it's a complete movement beyond the delusive states that we so happily or actually, I should say, unhappily inhabit. Because we are dwelling in these states which we're not particularly happy in at all. Yet we have fixed views, and fixed views are so, so difficult to shift. Actually, I was co-teaching with somebody, and they told a really funny story, which I think I'll relate to you again. Um, I haven't got the script in front of me of the way it actually went, but this is a true incident. This is an absolutely true incident. It occurred between the American Navy and the Canadians, and it happened a couple of years ago, apparently. And it had occurred over the intercom system between the, the Americans and the Canadians. And it went something like this. Um, this is the USSS something or other. I forget which name. I think it was USS Lincoln. That's right. And it said, uh, this is the USS Lincoln aircraft carrier. Um, and we seem to be on a collision course with you. Can you please move 37 degrees south? Canadians to the Americans. No. Can you please move 37 degrees north? This is the USS Lincoln again. Um, We are on a collision course with you. Can you please move 37 degrees south? This is the Canadians. Can you please move 37 degrees north? This is the USS Lincoln. This is one of the largest ships in the world. 
we're accompanied by three destroyers and one battleship, and we will take every measure that's necessary to avoid a collision. This is the Canadians. We're a lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a true story. (laughs) So it shows you what fixed views do. (laughs) If you have a fixed view about something, it's very difficult to shift it. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that just illustrates, I mean, I couldn't remember the whole thing perfectly, but that's basically the tenor of the way that conversation went between, it was apparently the Canadian Coast Guard and the the American Navy. Um, But it shows you how intractable views are once you get locked into them. Um, And we can get locked very easily, and I mean almost at a subliminal level here, into views about the way the world is or the way it should be for us and not see actually the way it is. That's the blindness, that's the delusion, that's actually the starting point for a whole other investigation which the Buddha starts off, which he actually is probably the most profound teaching in the whole of Buddhism, which is the teaching of dependent origination. And it starts off with ignorance. Ignorance being the basis of everything that happens Or, if you don't like the word ignorance, confusion as being the basis for everything that pans out later, including craving and clinging and becoming and birth and old age and death. And those have to be interpreted, some of them metaphorically, but it's um, in traditional cultures they're interpreted literally, but psychologically we understand them metaphorically. But it all starts with this, in some senses, Actually, ignorance is quite a good word because if we take it in its true etymological sense in English, it's a very, very good starting point because ignorance is not just not having knowledge. It means not wanting to know. Yeah? That's what ignorance is. It's not wanting to know. You know. So actually, a bit like that exchange here, they didn't really want to hear the other position at all. They didn't actually see it whatsoever. Normally in our, in our norm, ordinary daily lives, we don't actually want to see the way things really are. Because actually it's very, it's hard, isn't it? If we actually hear, really, really hear with impact that phrase, everything, absolutely everything is impermanent, it's not making life easy, is it? It's not making life easy. We're trying to create ease for ourselves in life unfortunately we go about it in all the wrong ways and what we create is a vast set of sense of disease for ourselves a lot of the time so when we start talking about ignorance and I'm not going to go into dependent origination tonight but perhaps with one other evening um, but when we look at that foundational point well actually ignorance well actually in Pali the word for if you like knowledge and ignorance, well, it's just down to one negation, an A sound. So it's avidya is ignorance, vidya is knowledge. Yeah. So actually, what we're, what we're in a sense we have is some degree of knowledge already, we're just overlooking it continuously. We're negating it. We're negating, in other words, the facts that are before our eyes. To see things clearly, to see them in the way they are, that is panya. That is beginning to see you know, with 
some kind of eye of discernment and to start to live in according. So panya actually is embodied wisdom, embodied knowledge that actually lives in a way which is directly in relationship to the way things are. The Buddha is a good example of that. The Arahants in the tradition are a very good example of that, of living in accordance. The fetters, it has said, has been cut. What has done has been done. And what has needed to be done has also been done. So it's a clarifying of vision. Part of this is about a clarifying of vision, starting to clear up the kind of myopia that we suffer from um, and think actually that's the way the world is because we can't see terribly clearly. So this is about the sharpening up of vision, the sharpening up of our perception. So panya is in the service, in a sense, of our perception of the world. However, I don't want to just leave it like that because it also has to have the balance of compassion too. That panya is balanced by compassion. That the Buddha stresses both. Unfortunately, in Theravadan tradition, it's the wisdom dimension that's often get, often gets um, exaggerated almost, without the balancing with the compassionate dimension, the meta dimension, the friendliness dimension of life, which I referred to. To move through the world clearly without creating a wake of destruction behind us, uh, we need both. We need that clarity of seeing, which is implied in Panya, and that embodiment of living it, but we also need this connectedness with others, this real deep sense of connectedness that we can have with others, stemming from a friendliness towards ourselves, stemming from being rooted in this fundamental friendliness. Eastern teachers really had a very difficult job when they first started coming to the West, understanding actually basically Westerners didn't like themselves very much. They really had a big problem with that. You know, um, in the East, traditionally, when you develop metta, when you start to develop kindness, you do it very briefly towards yourself and then start to develop it towards others. They suddenly realized, of course, that wasn't applicable in the West. Actually, we needed to do an awful lot of work developing it towards ourselves before we could even step outside and start to develop it towards others. Partly, I think, because Western society has become much, much more fragmented, far less communal. Um, Still, a lot of Eastern society is actually still communally based. So there's a lot of connectedness and interaction uh, within Eastern societies, which have actually disappeared a lot in the West now. Plus, of course, a huge dollop of monotheism, um, which has been very critical. You know, it's taught us in a way to be extremely self-critical. Some of it isn't all bad, but a lot of it is very self-destructive. So as a consequence of this, we have this very unhealthy relationship, often with ourselves. And sometimes we can make a virtue of this unhealthy relationship. I'm sure most of us have heard somebody say something like this, which is, look, I'm only being as hard on you as I am on myself. You know, which is really meaning, I'm going to beat you up because I'm beating me up. Yeah. Yeah, and we often do that. You know, we try to put the same stresses and strains on another that we do to ourselves. Now, this is not friendliness. This is not going to lead to compassion in this world. And it's both of those. I think when we start to talk about panya, we start talking about the balance, if you're going to use that old translation, the balance of wisdom and compassion, not simply 
a huge dose of just seeing clearly. Again, just to refer to Rilke. I might try and see if I can bring the poem down tomorrow night. But there's a poem in Rilke which is called Wendung in German, which is Turning Point, I think it's translated as, where he says, you know, there came the knowledge that somebody knew how to look and to look very carefully. It's a very good message for the parsoner, isn't it? That's what we're doing. We're learning to look. We're learning to see very clearly. But it says, then it came, became obvious, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, it's a beautiful poem, that it became obvious that looking wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough simply to look. You had to love what you looked at. Yeah. And I think there's a great message there, which is when we look at our own processes, particularly in Vipassana-style meditation here, we can become extremely self-critical because of all that we discover. Yeah. I mean, I've been encouraging you today, haven't I, to look at your basically your lust, greed, aversion and delusion you know, when they pop up, if they're present or if they're absent. A kind of quick guess would be that you probably discovered a lot more presence than absence. I don't know, but you know, I'll kind of leave it with you. Um, because we often do, and that can be another cause to go, God, what a miserable person I am. What an awful character. I must have all this greed, aversion and delusion always arising in me. And it's not meant to do that. It's actually meant to come to grips realistically with it and in a sense kind of befriend it. I know it sounds a really strange thing to say, doesn't it? To befriend it. This is part of the wisdom. Because only in true acknowledgement of those things being there can, in a sense, letting go ever take place. And... You know, as I think I mentioned one other evening, letting go is not about a process of, okay, you sit down and I'm going to let go of this stuff. No, you're not. You can't do that. If I sit up here and say let go, it's going to make you hold on to it even more. What's actually being, what we're actually doing is laying the causes and conditions, inclining the mind in other directions, beginning to see clearly what's actually going on, truly starting to acknowledge the presence of these often very unwholesome mental factors, what we're doing is creating the causes and conditions for these things to let you go, rather than you let them go. Yeah. When we start to grow, and I'll use one horticultural metaphor and I'll finish, and then tomorrow night I'll pick up on sati, which is where I was going to go, but I've spoken too long again. <laughs> Shut me up! <laughs> yeah. But, you know... <laughs> If I'm going to use a horticultural metaphor, it's a bit like growing lots and lots of beautiful flowers and covering your, covering your ground with flowers or beautiful ground cover so that the weeds don't go through, grow through. I mean, when you've got enough dense foliage there, the weeds do not appear. They've got nowhere to grow. Grow wholesome qualities in your mind and the unwholesome ones will have nowhere to root at all. You know, so if you're growing the beautiful qualities, that actually this is what they're termed of, subana in, in Pali. Subana, the beautiful mental factors. The subana factors. So the subana factors are things such as generosity, kindness, compassion, non-hatred, you know, love in other words, and many, many other factors as well. All of these are the beautiful factors. And if one inclines your mind towards those with awareness, 
and mindfulness is at the key of this, is at the heart of this practice, then your unwholesome weeds such as aversion and hatred, delusion, stinginess, jealousy, you know, and there's a great list of them, there's 17 of them altogether, um, they won't be able to grow through. They have nothing to root into any longer. And that's what we're doing. So panya, panya is actually really, really beginning to see clearly and to live that clarity, but together with other wholesome mental factors, which are there. And I'll hopefully say some more about that. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> okay. Okay, as usual, comments and uh, questions. One there and then that first. Yeah. What about the goodness? Is it part of generosity? Or? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's not a separate, a separate mental factor. It's part of generosity. To forgive is to be generous with yourself and with another. Well, a very beautiful factor to actually have that. Um, is also linked to compassion as well. You know, for example, to forgive somebody who's done you wrong is actually to see the pain from which they operate often or to at least understand that what causes unskillful, unwholesome action, whether it's directed at you or to others, is actually pain. Yeah, it's woundedness. Um, I personally think, perhaps I'm being a bit idealistic about it, but I think there are actually very few genuinely malicious people in the world, if any. Most are just operating out of pain in some way. Forgiveness comes with an understanding of that. So it comes through a generosity of spirit to allow yourself to see that, but it also comes with a compassion as well for the, other, for the others who are engaging in these sort of actions. And including ourselves, because we too engage in these unwholesome actions you know, as well. So f- forgiveness is also about learning too, if we take it in ourselves, to learn to forgive, I not hold on to, and then beat ourselves up with it about what we've done wrong, but to actually learn from it, to actually learn perhaps not to do that sort of thing again here. Actually, there's one word that's missing, and, and I really um, kind of just want to mention it in passing, but there's one word missing, actually, in most Asian vocabularies, one which is very strong in Western vocabularies. It certainly isn't there in Pali, it's not there in Sanskrit, it's not there in Chinese, it's not there in Tibetan, and it's a word called guilt. There is no word for guilt in any of these cultures. There's plenty of words for shame, but not for guilt. Guilt has a historical connotation. We carry it with us. So actually we don't forgive ourselves because we still feel guilty. It's like a little bag that we carry on with us, all the bad deeds that we carry around with us that we still continue to make ourselves feel pain about many, many years after. Actually, we don't necessarily learn from guilt. We don't necessarily. We can, but we don't necessarily learn from guilt. Often it's a way of just carrying around a load of baggage. and we haven't actually learnt something. So forgiving ourselves is to let go of guilt as well, to see our humanness, to see our fallibility. After all, this is sangsara, from the Buddhist perspective, this is sangsara. We are making a mess of it a lot of the time. This is not not because we are horrible people, it's often because we don't know any other better ways of being in this world. What the path starts to open up is better ways of being in this world. 
more skillful ways of dealing with the situations that we encounter in our lives. So rather than considering ourselves all to be horrible because we do these things, it's not that. It's just that we are unskillful. Yeah. So therefore, you know, that kind of unskillfulness, particularly, you know, when we're operating out of pain. Look at look how an animal, even the most placid animal, if it's in pain, will bite you. If it's in pain. You know, and that's what we're doing a lot of the time. Now the pain often goes unrecognized. Because it's it's actually almost built into the mechanisms of the way that we live. And therefore all our snappiness you know, and there's a lot of snappiness around, isn't there? Uh, in the ways that we are with other people is actually as a result of that pain, which is often unrecognized. Again, this is all, a, this all should generate forgiveness for ourselves yeah. and have a softer attitude. Okay. There was a kind of the back. Mm-hmm. Yep, I mean, it's a very good. That's a very, very good question. But um, let's put it the opposite way around. Um, hating your cancer, if you have one, is that going to make you feel any better? I'm not. I'm. I'm uncertain a little bit about that. I, I, you know, I bow to superior wisdom if there's anybody who knows more about it. But I think that actually having a much more friendlier attitude towards something that was within us is far better than kind of loathing it and hating it and kind of wanting to kind of just deny it. Actually, as a lot of people do. So it's again, it's the attitude with which we hold something, and this is what I'm really talking about: is the attitude with which we hold something. Like being sick, you can rail against it. You, know, you can rail against having the virus or the bug that you've picked up from somewhere because it's made you feel absolutely ghastly, and you've had to take into your, take to your bed, and you can lie there in resentment, saying, "Why me?" Why did I get this? You know, and actually, it's all, I'm a joke about it, but it's what a lot of people do. Um, and we can do very easily ourselves. However, to hold it in a different way, which is the mental attitude of not treating it with aversion, but just to, in a sense, if you, know, if you have a bug, you've got a bug. Accept it. Now, it doesn't stop you taking medicine. You know? Accepting that you have a cancer, for example, doesn't stop you from taking the courses of treatment that you think is appropriate and you want to put yourself through to try and deal with that. But having aversion to it, to me, seems to actually be creating another situation which is actually, in a sense, reinforcing um, a very, very unfortunate sense of the disease, actually, that's at the heart of it. That's right. Yeah, and really boosting that health, healthiness. You know, you can say something is wrong with you, but there's an awful lot right with you. And actually, I'd use that as a metaphor for actually our lives in general. 
You know, we, can, we can concentrate, we can fixate, actually, on our problems, can't we? And I know, you know there's probably as many people as in this room, there's as many different types of problems that people have. You know, some more serious than others, but everybody in this room probably has problems that they're trying to deal with, aspects of their life they don't find satisfactory here. However, um, to solely fixate on that is often to miss out on actually all of the good things that are there in your life, the joys, the laughter, um, the, you know, just being here, the beauty of the surroundings, the... You know, the rustling of the wind in the trees and all these sort of things that we can miss out when I'm solely fixated on the problem you know, that we have. We miss that. So actually, even if we have a really, really intense problem, sometimes, A, there's a lot of, if you like, different moods within that problem as well, and we often miss the things which will give other meanings to our life which are also occurring, such as joy. Whoops, I missed it. It went past. Yeah. And just one more thing. Sure. On that, just, it just, that just reminds me of a story that I heard once about um, a gentleman who was told by his doctor that he had cancer and he had six weeks to live or so. Um, so, obviously, you know, he went back in and he had this huge shock and everything. And lo and behold, about eight weeks later, Mm. Um, but on autopsy, they found that he had no cancer at all. So he had actually fought himself to death. <laughs> well, one thing that does show you is the power of the mind. Yeah. It really, really does. That's quite chilling. Well, just the fear alone, I would think, you know, um, if you're getting into a very, very fearful state, would create conditions, perhaps. So, you know, the power of the mind is amazing. And the way, for example, that particularly in neuroscience these days, they're talking about the plasticity of the brain and the way the brain is is not a set, fixed system at all. It's, you know, being moulded all the time by what we do. So much so, I was speaking to a neuroscientist again in the States who was saying, she said, you know, never think that five minutes of meditation is wasted meditation. Five minutes will change the shape of your brain. Yeah. Yeah. Yet we tend to think, oh, I've only got five minutes, it's a waste of time. I need to do a lot longer. Yeah. So never think that that's the case. Um, the brain is so malleable and so plastic um, that we are setting up connections all the time, just even in orienting our mind for such a short period of time. Yeah. And, and they're not the four noble truths, or they are. So no, they're not the four noble truths. <laughs> the four noble truths are the four noble truths are dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path to the end of dukkha. And what was the last one? <coughs> the path to the end of dukkha, the eightfold path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the actual eight stages of the path that actually lead to awakening if we practice it. That's the, that's the fourth of the noble truths. So let me just say that again, because you know, some of others might be a bit confused about this. Dukkha, where we started off, the very, very first evening, and talking about you know, the nature of our distress. You know, this is what it is. There is a cause to it. Well, that's the good news. 
believe it or not. If there's a cause to it, and if we can identify the cause and eliminate the cause, then the disease will disappear. The disease of of the type of dukkha that the Buddha is specifically identifying will disappear. That cause is craving. Then he says, which is even better still, he says dukkha can cease. He calls it dukkha niroda, the cessation of dukkha. There is a cessation. It's like telling your patient, okay, you've got this disease, there is a cause to it, however, the prognosis is really good because we can get rid of it. But here's a regimen back to health, and that's the fourth noble truth. So it's basically like a medical diagnosis. Problem, cause, the good news that you can be healthy again, but you've got to take this prescription. And, and there's eight dimensions to it. <laughs> yeah, I told you we're list fetishists. Now, the four things I spoke about are what's called Brahma-viharas. Yeah. Sub- sublime dwellings. And it's really impossible to translate. It means Literally, it means dwelling with Brahma. You know, Brahma being the Hindu god. Um, and it's basically a phrase that's used because of the time the Buddha was living in and he's dwelling with a lot of, um, not Hindus specifically, but Brahmins. And those four things are friendliness, metta, compassion, karuna, gentle joy, mudita, and upekka, which is equanimity. And those are things which in themselves can be very, I think, very much paths to awakening in themselves. Because they are ways of developing mindfulness too. Well, just 10,000 monks. There were no nuns. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about uh, Buddha some idea, ideas because there are uh, amazing uh, number of people who they uh, decided to renunciate and uh, have this way of life. Mm-hmm. No, he had no ideas about it at all, basically. Um, I don't think, for example, he ever envisaged a community which was going to be a settled community um, for a start-off. It was a wandering community, initially. Part of the success in early Buddhism, I don't, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about this because it's more of a historical question in many ways, but a lot of the success of early Buddhism and the Buddha himself was that people came to him um, because they were so impressed by what he taught, they gave him land actually gave him land. Now that coupled with something else that used to go on, which was there were all these wanderers in ancient India, and actually somebody comes to the Buddha at one time um, during the rainy season, which is the growing season in India, and said, all these monks are trampling over my fields. (laughs) And so he decides to use the land to create small communities during the rainy season where they all gather together and they're not going outside and trampling over people's land. Yeah, I don't think he actually envisaged them becoming settled communities at all. In fact, in a very, very early text, the Sutta Nipata, which I quoted from you, it's the bit I pinned up on the board, 
in the Sutta Nipata, he says, um, he said, actually, even two monks shouldn't even travel together, let alone live together. He said, two monks are like the bracelets on a woman's arms. They simply jangle. <laughs> you know? They clash together and make a terrible noise. You know, so he wasn't actually, I don't think, actually in his own time, thinking about settled communities at all and the burden that they were going to put on people. Um, but they do grow, they do grow, and actually within South Asia, most of the monasteries are not that big. It's really mainly in the northern regions, particularly in Tibet, that they grew to such enormous proportions. China they did to a certain extent as well, but the largest were certainly in Tibet, um, where they basically operated a feudal monastic system, exactly as I answered in the earlier um, query, a feudal monastic system where, for example, the land was owned by the monasteries, people farmed the land and they gave a certain proportion of their produce to the monasteries to support the monasteries. Um, and that seemed to work quite well. Um, everybody had enough food and the only recorded famine in Tibetan history was when the Chinese took over and abolished all of that. Uh, into collectivization. You know, so... You know, it has its good and bad side. From a Western kind of liberal democracy point of view, it sounds very strange, but it was a social contract, actually, between the monastic communities and the lay communities. What the lay communities got in return, actually, for the offerings that they made of food and all the things to support the monks was they got education, for example. If you go even to South Asia now... Most of the schools in South Asia will be, in small villages, the monastery. So that's where the children get sent to learn to read and write. Um, also, they will get the teaching. Yeah. And rightly or wrongly, I mean, the um, social conditions are very different, but actually in these monastic communities and lay communities where they really work, there's a great deal of mutual respect on either side from the monks towards the lay people that support them and from the lay people towards the monks who provide them with spiritual sustenance, uh, in turn for material sustenance, often. So the question of balance, when yeah. it's balanced... When it's balanced, it's fine. Yeah, so it, the problem can only uh, perceive now in the Western countries where we get a lot or more and more people who are older and older... Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, perhaps more times not possible. Yeah. Any longer. Yeah. It becomes imbalanced, yeah, and exactly the same can happen in any culture. And I think that's what happened in these northern cultures such as Tibet and um and China to a degree and, and Korea and some of those some of the monasteries were fairly large. But that never really happened in South Asia. There were some fairly extensive monasteries and the, you can see the ruins of them in in India to this day, of fairly large monasteries. But they would have been supportable by the lay communities. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived at all because they were totally dependent on lay communities for, their, for, the, for basic necessities, really. Yeah. So were they just monks, then? Pardon? In Tibet, were they just monks? They didn't have nuns? They did have nuns, but the ordination tradition for nuns never reached Tibet, so they weren't officially nuns. They weren't actually ordained nuns. They did have some who lived as nuns. And it was always very small in comparison with the yeah, monasteries. Kind of a lot of the male population. Yeah, it was, it was a way of getting rid of your surplus. Polygamy, then? I mean, what happened to all these women, additional women? 
Well, a quarter of the male population were in monasteries in Tibet. It was a quarter. It was an awful lot, but it's very interesting. I don't know how true this is, but just one explanation I heard for this was actually uh, something to do with the genetics of it, that some Mongol, which the Tibetans are a Mongol people, uh, tend to produce many more men, male children, than female children. So hence the reason why, actually, in Himalayan kingdoms, you find polyandry as well as polygamy going on. So that's part of the reason. So actually, the monastery is a way of getting rid of your surplus male population. <laughs> you and that, that still happens. It's, it's, yeah, it still happens. It's always, yeah, I mean, there's often economic social reasons for why this happens. Um, even to this day, I mean, when the monasteries I was living in, um, you would get, for example, small children from often the age of five being put into the monasteries because the family couldn't support them any longer because of lack of birth control and everything else. Um, and there would be more male children, so the male kids booted off into the monastery. That's what I was saying the other night. You know, a lot of these you know, older monks become surrogate fathers, <laughs> you know, looking after these small kids, you know, who are just as naughty, whether they're monks or not, as, as ordinary kids. <laughs> okay, I think we ought to uh, draw it to a close for this evening. Thank you, everybody.